This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 47, the penultimate episode of this very large series. Last time we introduced you to the concept of nuclear diplomacy, a tactic which had developed over the different stages of the Korean War as the Truman administration experienced adversity, triumph and severe struggles. We saw how President Truman was content to move the nuclear chess pieces across the board but that he never seriously considered using them under the circumstances, even when the People's Republic of China intervened and launched their blistering counter-offensives over spring 1951. The Allies were able to hold on under this onslaught, and after removing the man who had countenanced the sowing of a field of nuclear waste along the communist supply lines, Truman seemed content to allow General Ridgway to just do his thing in Korea, and do what he did. The truce negotiations proceeded apace during the summer months, but what appeared first like a positive step was soon revealed as a cynical communist delaying tactic as their troops dug in and the potential for great gains in the war vanished. During this period, the Truman administration's use of nuclear weapons to gain leverage and apply pressure against the communists was used fluidly as Washington adapted to the constantly changing circumstances both at home and abroad. 
In the final analysis, it seems highly improbable that the Truman administration ever seriously considered making use of the nuclear weapons and inflicting nuclear fire on the Chinese. Only in certain circumstances, such as the direct Soviet involvement in Korea or the touching off of World War III in Western Europe, for example, would nuclear weapons even be used. And even then, Truman had established a new subcommittee of the National Security Council for the very purpose of ensuring that such weapons would only be used as a last resort. This, as we learned last time, doesn't mean Truman was singularly opposed to the use of nuclear weapons. He did use them against Japan, after all. But it does mean that the president appreciated the cons of using such weapons often outweighed the pros, in spite of what the more belligerent members of the military might have tried to tell him. In this episode, the penultimate episode of the Korean War series, we'll bring this analysis of atomic diplomacy to its conclusion, and note how a different administration sought to present its policy towards nuclear weapons in the twilight moments of the Korean War. Let's see how it all went down right now. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by Zach Twomley, currently being in Harvard, doing the Sound Education Podcast Conference. Yes, indeed. Are you from the New England area? And are you around in Boston or in Harvard or in the New England area in general and in the mood for a drive on the 2nd to 3rd of November? Well, great. That's good to hear. Well, I will be in the area for about a week. I'm celebrating my 27th birthday because I'm super old and wise now. But I'm also going to be attending the Harvard Sound Education Podcast Conference. I will be speaking about the 1916 Rising, since I was going to speak about the Treaty of Versailles. But hey, life is too short to be always focusing on that little event in history. So I decided to change things up a bit. And for the benefits of my American audience, talk about something that I'm quite passionate about and have done a mini-series on already. In any case, I am super, super excited to be attending... Zachary Davis, the man who's organized all of this wonderful stuff, has managed to get a whole load of different podcasters together. Everyone from Dan Carlin to yours truly to Royfield Brown to everyone who's basically part of the Agora Podcast Network. It's a very exciting time and all being well, us Agora folks will be able to do a a joint podcast at some point. That would be pretty cool, even if we were to just all say hello at the same time. I think that would be nice. We've never actually been in the same room together before. All this Agora stuff is always done over the internet, so it's nice to meet each other in person and see exactly who we all are. Of course, that being said, When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, in case you weren't aware already, and you, of course, can check out several other wonderful podcasts in the Agora frame simply by searching agora podcasts go to agorapodcasts.com all the usual stuff guys you know the drill by now we've been a member of the agora podcast network for over three years at this point i think or at least no wait coming up on three years i think it's three years in november so it's kind of nice for the three-year anniversary of the agora podcast network being founded we all meet together in a place called harvard who would have thought that zach twomley the guy who didn't even get enough points to do history in University College Dublin. Who would have thought that he'd be going to Harvard to speak about the 1916 Rising? It's funny how things work out, and these things do work out because you guys support When Diplomacy Fails so well. I would like to thank you all so much. I really do mean that. Your support, monetary, like, I was about to say spiritual, that's the wrong word, more like moral support, has just meant so much. You're really doing well being fit and sharing this podcast all over the place. Remember the simplest way to support us simply by telling people. So the song of the week this week is something a bit special. It is a listener recommendation. A huge shout out to Chris Talbert for recommending this song. It is, you you may recognize it or not, it is Hillbilly Wolf by Billy Strickland. Apparently, Billy Strickland is a relative or an ancestor or however you call it of Chris Talbert and we are very very happy that he has decided to recommend this to us apparently he gets no money from this he purely gets enjoyment and I'm sure you'll get some enjoyment from it too this is Hillbilly Wolf by Billy Strickland it was released in 1949 enjoy it guys we will be back afterwards with episode 47 of the Korean War Money, but man, I have my fun. 
with much money, but man, I have my fun. I'm a hillbilly wolf and I'm a growling son of a gun. How do you bring a war to a conclusion? I'll tell you how Korea was ended. We got in there and had this messy war on our hands. Eisenhower let the word go out, let the word go out diplomatically to the Chinese and North Koreans that he would not tolerate this continual ground war of attrition, and within a matter of months, they negotiated. These were the words of Richard Nixon in a private conversation to the Republican Caucus in 1968, and his views were mirrored again by his rival, Lyndon B. Johnson, who noted during an interview with the New York Times that same year that, after investigating carefully every possible course of action, I always come back to the warning of President Harry S. Truman about how unchallenged aggression could lead to another world war. In that same interview did the New York Times conclude that, as Mr. Johnson views his history, Korea is indeed the strategic and political parallel of Vietnam. Thus, he has tried to steer along the narrow path that avoids military escalation, great enough to provoke Chinese intervention once again. What are we to make of such observations, and of the belief which noted how effective the threat of great and terrible use of force had been during the last phase of the Korean War? If we were to believe Richard Nixon, we would come away with the impression that Eisenhower forced a resolution to the conflict with the Chinese, through the application of atomic diplomacy. Under the burden of such threats, Mao decided that it just wasn't worth tempting fate, and he instructed his officials to make peace. When this outcome is combined with the massively expanded military capabilities of the United States, under NSC-68, and the sanctioning of containment, everything seems to come together. Wouldn't it be nice if I could highlight this culmination of forces, of the different threads of our story together as proof of my own hypothesis explaining the reasons behind the Korean War? Yes, indeed it would. As I've said before though, forcing peace upon the communists was far from the only instance where the fruits of the NSC-68 build-up were used. The very conflict of which Nixon and President Johnson spoke in the late 60s, Vietnam, had come into being precisely because of containment, that new American foreign policy approach launched in the prelude to the Korean War and crystallised during it. Indeed, the resulting explosion in American defence capabilities made the incredible investment in Vietnam actually possible, just as much as the experience of Korea shaped 
how Washington viewed communism and the American role in containing it in the world. American leaders, as much as their peers, looked back to previous experiences for guidance and inspiration. The Korean War in particular, Eisenhower's blunt instrument approach to solving the Korean problem, rather, seemed to suggest to American leaders 15 years later that in this other Asian conflict, a similar approach would bear similar fruit. As we know, though, the reality in both Vietnam and in the final phases of the Korean War was far from so simple. In spite of what the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, would like to claim later on, and what the historical consensus seems to suggest, neither Dulles nor his president had honed their policy towards nuclear weapons all that much. In addition, Eisenhower went to Korea, as he had promised, but he studiously avoided discussing what was deemed Op Plan 8-52, the United States strategy which called for the use of nuclear weapons in and beyond Korea in conjunction with an advance to the narrow waste of the peninsula, with UN Commander Mark W. Clark. Mark W. Clark had replaced General Ridgway as the commander of UN forces as the supreme allied commander after Ridgway had replaced Eisenhower at NATO. So everyone was being shuffled around and all the generals were taking new seats. But Clark was no more willing than Ridgway had been to use nuclear weapons and he deferred always to Washington. Op Plan 8-52, a document which we're meeting here for the first time, so don't worry if you're wondering if we've talked about it before and you've just been asleep. You haven't been. This is the first time we've seen it. But it's largely unimportant in this debate, precisely because of Eisenhower's spurning of it. Had he wanted to, in other words, Eisenhower could have made use of a pre-existing plan for the use of nuclear weapons to apply pressure on the communists in North Korea, and he could even have brought forward some phases of the plan to demonstrate that he meant business. But Eisenhower chose not to, and he also determinedly ignored MacArthur's loony advice to sow a nuclear wasteland along the Yalu River. To some extent, caution and circumspection made good political sense at home and abroad. Domestically, they prevented a split within the Republican Party between those who thought along MacArthurian lines and the more knowledgeable and conservative legislators who feared that using atomic weapons in Korea might reduce the American nuclear stockpile to the point of weakening global deterrence. Also, the fact that it would be a pretty horrible thing to do under the circumstances. Internationally, circumspect actions and imprecise words kept adversaries and allies uncertain of the EU administration's intentions, and it fostered an impression of toughness which does thought potentially useful in negotiations. To some extent, he was right. However, on the other hand, once in office, the new leaders had to think, speak, and act in more concrete terms. From the second week of February through to the end of May 1953, the Eisenhower administration used the National Security Council as a forum in which to consider alternative ways to end the Korean fighting. Some analysts have interpreted their discussions, which touched on options ranging up to the use of atomic weapons in the military in and beyond the peninsula, as a prologue to attempted nuclear pressure. They link the NSC's approval of contingency plans for the use of nuclear weapons and arms to John Foster Dulles's signalling that intention to Beijing by way of New Delhi, where the Indians eagerly awaited any development which could help bring the Korean War to an end. If the negotiators at Panmun Jom had not quickly reached a settlement acceptable to Washington, these observers have suggested, limited war in Korea might well have become nuclear. Close analysis and comparison of the Eisenhower administration's behaviour in the spring of 1953 with the Truman administration's actions two years earlier, however, suggest more modest conclusions about the NSC discussions in particular and about the role of atomic diplomacy in ending the war in general. The NSC deliberations proved more discursive than decisive. They took place in relatively permissive circumstances rather than under the crisis conditions which beset the Truman administration. The enemy, rather than threatening escalation, showed signs of interest and accommodation, while its soldiers pretty much showed that they wanted to stay put and hold back whatever Allied attack might be coming. The Eisenhower administration moved in a time when the Korean War was at least tempered by the fact that everyone was also war-weary and a location for peace talks existed, whereas Truman's administration endured a year of weighted developments before the peace table was used. 
This helps to explain why Eisenhower's predecessor had been more fluid and adaptive to the question of nuclear weapons. It also helps to explain why Washington attempted to make use of their atomic advantage in several different ways. Truman's actions were also held under much greater scrutiny than Eisenhower's, as his administration seemed to blunder from error to error and it proved wholly unable to solve the Korean crisis. By Eisenhower's succession, public interest in the conflict was at an all-time low, even if public weariness and frustration at the war was at a record high. This has to be juxtaposed with the honeymoon period granted to Eisenhower's administration, all of which combines to provide a picture of a much less stressful Korean situation than that which had so vexed Truman. Under these circumstances, Eisenhower's administration actually dallied a lot more than we may have expected. Take, for example, those several NSC meetings in the first half of 1953. In seven of those meetings, only two of them ever saw all of the administration's figures present at the same time. In one meeting in mid-February 1953, the National Security Council refused to deploy nuclear-ready B-29s to Tokyo, and they refused to place nuclear weapons in UN Commander Mark Clark's hands. Since the administration seemed unable to agree on the use of nuclear weapons, an outcome provided for in Op Plan 8-52, don't forget, the Joint Chiefs referred it to the Joint Strategic Survey Committee, just one more body that we need in our lives right now. In any case, they referred it to the Joint Strategic Survey Committee for a study on a routine rather than an urgent basis. The report, produced a month later, bared sharp inter-service differences. While some Air Force and Navy staffers thought that nuclear bombing might constitute sufficient pressure to force China into accepting reasonable armistice terms, other figures, including the Army Chief of Staff, disagreed. The alternative viewpoint was that only concerted ground, sea and air operations promised success in an advance northward to the narrow waist of the peninsula or to the Yalu. Division of this sort didn't exactly bode well for the timely conclusion to the war. During one NSC meeting in late March, Eisenhower signalled that he didn't even know the exact size of America's nuclear stockpile. Added to this picture, on the 8th of April 1953, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Omar Bradley, even suggested that the best solution for Korea was to drag our feet. How do we reconcile these procrastinatory, timid approaches to Korea within the Eisenhower administration, with the generally parroted view that Eisenhower firmly embraced the nuclear weapons at his disposal to bring about an end to the Korean War? We should note that in addition to the apparent hesitancy of Eisenhower's administration came the apparent willingness of the communists to talk terms, likely because of Joseph Stalin's death in early March. Yet even that seismic event in the history of the Soviet Union does not fully explain why and how the Chinese came to warm to ideas of peace. The arrival of the armistice was the product of the general war weariness of the parties involved, as much as it was the product of Soviet peacemaking, and the proposals of the Indian delegation to the United Nations, don't forget them, they deserve a bit of credit too. The prisoners issue was as contentious a sticking point to the Allied and Communist side in summer 1953, as it had been when it first became an issue in spring 1952, and the Indian proposals had attempted to disassemble this stumbling block, a process which only very slowly gained ground as the months progressed. To explain how the armistice was produced, we also have to consider the very regime change which the United States underwent. In line with this, the historian Edward Friedman noted that, One must not forget how important seeming tough on communists came to be for President Truman. He subsequently commented that he would have been hanged had he ever agreed to armistice terms, which Eisenhower approved. This ability of the more right-wing presidential candidate to deal more freely with supposed radicals abroad has often been commented upon. If true, then the Truman administration itself, as part of the dynamics of American politics, was a major obstacle to peace. An end to the war had to await Eisenhower's ascension to power. Regime changes in the United States and USSR at these critical moments cannot be overlooked as critical factors in the facilitation of peace. Consider again Stalin's death and his replacement by a cabal of nervous, competing, high Soviet officials. Historians and analysts writing in the 1960s 
gave several interpretations of the peace negotiations, which unfolded in spring 1953, to explain why the Korean War came to an end. One of these, penned by Harold Hinton in 1966, explained Stalin's death not as something which freed the Chinese to make peace under Soviet blessing, but which forced Mao to sue for peace instead, since Stalin's support was absent, since, obviously, Stalin was dead. Hinton wrote, The Chinese were probably convinced that Stalin had been contemplating at least diversionary action on their behalf, and almost certainly demanded as much from his successors. In addition, the Chinese probably pressed for immediate transfer of operational nuclear weapons and delivery systems, and the necessary instruction in use, as well as long-term aid in the creation of a Chinese nuclear weapons program. There is at least a strong possibility that never since 1945, except perhaps in October 1962, has the world stood as close to general war as it did in February 1953, and that much of this danger stemmed from an apparent willingness on Stalin's part to take drastic action, partly on behalf of the Chinese People's Republic and in connection with the Korean War. There is something dissatisfying and vague about Hinton's note here, that the Chinese were probably convinced of Stalin's determination to take action on their behalf, that the Chinese probably pressed for immediate aid from Stalin to create their own nuclear program, that there was a strong possibility that the world never stood so close to war as it did in February 53, or that the apparent willingness on Stalin's part to take drastic action helped to spur the Chinese on. To me, this sounds like Hinton's way of saying in 1966 that he did not know for sure what Stalin's death meant to the Chinese, but that he was interpreting the evidence in a certain way based on the visit of Chinese officials to Moscow in late February 1953. In his book, Harold Hinton presented Mao as being constrained by Stalin's death, not because a load of Soviet peacemakers emerged in the Soviet high command, but because Stalin had supported Mao, and that upon the former's death, the latter evidently had lost a key ally. This, of course, does not gel at all with our presentation of Stalin up to this point. In many respects, I find Hinton's presentation unconvincing, and this is probably because the necessary source materials just were not available to him in 1966, and so he had to do his best to interpret and estimate what occurred based on his own experience and what conventional wisdom seemed to suggest. I feel it wouldn't be right to ignore this fascinating interpretation of Stalin's death, even if I do take issue with its conclusions, and that's why I'm presenting it to you here. Also, for another example of the reason why source material is so important, and how much people's perspectives on Stalin and Mao changed once the necessary material was made available. But there's a few more things I'd like to say about Hinton's interpretation before we move on. Since our explanation for the outbreak of the Korean War would be different to much of the books and articles published in the last few decades after the conclusion of that conflict, it is worth considering how our understanding of Stalin helps to explain why the Korean War ended as it did. Because Stalin was undeniably central to the outbreak of the Korean War, and because it flowed from his policy objectives for China and the West, it follows that he would not seek to bring it to an end unless he had a very good cause to do so. There is no convincing evidence, short of Hinton's conjectures, that Stalin decided to help facilitate an end to the war. Why would he do that, when the Korean War had been his brainchild to begin with? Yet at the same time, because of our understanding of Stalin, we can do some interpreting of our own. Hinton had the wrong overall idea of Stalin, because he presented Stalin's support of Mao during the Sino-Soviet meeting in February 1953, as evidence of the Soviet support for the Chinese in the face of American pressures and blustering. But how do we explain evidence which points to Stalin's support of the Chinese in February 1953? Well, if we maintain that Stalin's major objective was to keep the Chinese and Americans engaged in a costly conflict for as long as possible, for political and strategic reasons, then it follows that his actions were designed to entrench that conflict and prevent its speedy conclusion. When the Chinese emerged from their meeting and seemed content to face the American threats, safe in the knowledge that Stalin would support them in their calling of the American bluff, so he said, we can see our central hypothesis validated. The Chinese continued in their war, unaware that the continuation of the war was exactly what Stalin wanted to see. 
Stalin encouraged the Chinese to stand firm and call Washington's bluff because he knew this would prolong the war. If he had signaled his unwillingness to support the Chinese, or if he had advised them in stringent terms, to talk terms, then Mao may well have felt sufficient pressure to reconsider his whole approach to the war. As it stood over 1952-53, to the dominant peace moves were made in the United Nations, where the Indians, as we saw, continued to put forward their proposals for a compromise in the thorny prisoners issue. Stalin was mindful of the Indian efforts to subdue this war he had played the dominant role in launching, and he had to intercept these initiatives, and he sought to do so by putting some steel into his Chinese allies to resist the Americans, to stand up to the West, knowing that Moscow supported them and in turn to be less likely to accept the Indian efforts. It was all connected, and in my mind, this interpretation of events makes the most sense. At all times when examining the behaviour of Stalin, Truman, et al., we must ask ourselves, what did they have to gain? Stalin was probably the most cynical of all the actors involved in the Korean War, and my central guiding principle throughout this series has been that we cannot understand or appreciate the war in Korea unless we understand the way Stalin looked at the world. Every advantage he could squeeze out of the Korean War was a bonus for him, and I've yet to find a convincing reason to explain why Stalin would seek peace in Korea or why Stalin would initiate some kind of talks. Historians normally propose Soviet weariness with the conflict, or a desire for economic rebuilding as the reason for Stalin's overtures to Mao. Having launched and then manipulated the conflict into being, the fruits of Stalin's labours surely could not last much longer, owing to the mutual weariness on both sides. Knowing this, Stalin was that much more eager to try something new to prolong the agony, and granting some firm support to the Chinese was just such a strategy. By claiming to support their efforts, Mao would be less willing to compromise and more encouraged to push the Allies harder. Harold Hinton was therefore correct to note that a great deal had changed once Stalin died. Yet it wasn't Stalin's selfless support of his ally that Mao lost on the 5th of March 1953, but the latest scheme of a paranoid, ruthless figure determined to wrest all he could out of the latest developments. Hinton's conclusions and interpretations, like so many historians of the Korean War, misses the critical point of Stalin's motive. For as long as the Korean War continued, Stalin believed the USSR was in its safest and most strategically favourable position in world affairs. With the West and the Chinese at loggerheads in a theatre which did not interest or concern him, Stalin could rest easy and develop plans to capitalise on the distraction. In the end, much of what Stalin did was consolidate the communist hold over Eastern Europe, develop the Warsaw Pact, present a strong foil to Western ambitions to expand their own influences into Germany or elsewhere, and arrest a load of Jewish doctors for no real reason at all. Once Stalin died, foreign adventures like the Korean War, and schemes like putting steel into the Chinese for the sake of prolonging everyone's least favourite conflict, no longer appealed to the Soviet leadership, which resembled a committee of paranoid, conflicting personalities, all eager to survive and then acquire the dominant leadership position. If you want to know more about what happened after Stalin died, make sure you check out the first part of 1956, which is available for $5 a month on patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Just had to throw that in there, just in case you want more information. Anyway, since on the surface all one sees is a change in policy towards China, with immediate results for Mao's own ability to resist the American bluffs, generations of historians have missed the critical question of why Stalin supported the Chinese in the first place. In my view, Stalin's schemes just before his death were the continuation of a policy towards Korea he had pursued since he first decided to support Kim Il-sung's ambition in January 1950. It was precisely because Stalin's policy towards Korea and China were so cynical, cunning, manipulative, secretive, and effective, you have to admit, that most have missed its true principles. Hopefully, now we appreciate a little better just how central to the Korean War the person of Joseph Stalin was. Mao Zedong, having been led on a wild ride by him all the way, certainly understood that everything would be different without him leading from Moscow. So while we have punched a few holes in it, Harold Hinton's point of view regarding Stalin's support of the Chinese in February 1953 was taken up by the historian Edward Friedman a decade later for his article examining atomic diplomacy and the end of the war. Friedman, like Hinton, 
wrote before the bulk of critically important source materials were released, but this does not mean that Hinton's, Friedman's, or any other historian writing before the sources were truly unwrapped during the 1980s should be ignored. If you're really confused by what's going on right now, all you really have to remember is this. Stalin never did anything that didn't bring him benefits, and second, Friedman's thesis, as do many other historians who wrote on atomic diplomacy, centred on the fact that John Foster Dulles was telling something of a porky when he claimed after the event, The decisive factor that finally broke the protracted and frustrating stalemate in negotiations at Pan Moon Jom was this. He, President Eisenhower, deliberately conveyed word to the communists, including the North Koreans, Chinese and Russians, through various secret channels, that, if progress towards a settlement was not made, any past limits were off as to both targets and weapons, and that, as we saw fit, we would use the atomic bomb. Thus, in a very roundabout way and through a very scenic route, we come back to the point of atomic diplomacy, the strategy unsuccessfully pursued by the Truman administration and then supposedly brought to its successful conclusion by the Eisenhower administration in spring 53. The latter idea has been peddled by Dulles, and while it remains unconvincing on the whole that the Chinese buckled under these threats, it is worth considering the genuine role such blustering played in bringing the Korean War to an end, especially once Stalin's support for the Chinese in the face of these American bluffs vanished with the Soviet leader's death. With the death of Stalin and the sudden absence of his self-interested support, Mao seems to have decided to fall in line with the Indian proposals for peace. We noted before how in late March, after the aftershocks of Stalin's death were felt, Beijing began signalling its willingness to talk seriously on the prospect of peace, as did Pyongyang. In late May, Dulles sent his provocative message through Indian Prime Minister Nehru to the effect that the United States would up the ante in its nuclear programme if peace was not soon reached. By that stage, of course, the Chinese had already decided to talk seriously about peace, safe in the knowledge that the disorganised Soviet leadership would no longer stand by them properly. The psychological force of the change in Soviet leadership was thus a critical reason for the onset of serious peace talks, yet the traditional explanation that Stalin's death removed the final barrier to peace doesn't fully explain what actually went down. Stalin's death was as important for what it facilitated, the so-called peace offensives, as much as it was important for what the Soviet Union no longer supported, that being Chinese efforts to stand up to Washington's bluffs. It was for different reasons that Stalin's death was critical to the advent of serious peace talks, but the Soviet leader's death still played a pivotal role, and must be regarded as something of a watershed moment in the history of the Korean War, a conflict which, after all, Stalin had brought to life. It is worth considering for a moment how empty the threats coming from Washington were as well. Certainly Dulles' claims were backed up with more practical and actual force than ever before, thanks to NSC 68, but there was also the fact that the political will to put it to use was lacking. One historian noted perceptively that, since the National Security Council recommended in December 1951 that the United States adhere to the policy of avoiding a general war with China and the USSR and of seeking an acceptable settlement in Korea that would not jeopardize the American position regarding Taiwan, a seat for communist China in the United Nations, or vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, the chances that the war would be broadened in the near future appeared small. Washington would be going against several grains if it attempted to make the limited war a total or even nuclear one in spring to summer 53. This of course shouldn't be news to us. The whole point of bluffing was to talk big so that you don't have to fight big. We have seen the sheer impact on its military capabilities that the previous year's rearmament had on the American capacity to wage a large war. Washington was standing on solid military ground, and even while Eisenhower knew that to wage a full-scale war with the Chinese at this time would result in an exodus of Americans' allies, most notably the British, who had no interest in waging a war against a potential trading partner whose trades they were sorely missing by 1953, Eisenhower put it himself that, should the limited war become larger, then we would have to go it alone. 
It is safe to say, then, as the majority of historians do, that the Eisenhower administration had no intentions of actually waging a proper war or nuking the Chinese. They certainly seemed to hope that bluster would be enough, and that because of the administration's new status, an armistice would be that much more acceptable to the right-wing critics who believed the previous president had been soft on communism. The cloak of bluster was also a handy disguise, which Dulles could later make use of. With a bit of work, he could present the blustering as the reason for the Chinese capitulation at Panmunjom, when in reality, the Chinese decision to treat had been made in light of Stalin's death and the willingness of Mao to accept the Indian proposals on the exchange of prisoners as the basis for negotiations. It is to the subject of the Indian proposals which we now turn our attention. It was in April 53, after a length of absence, that the negotiators sat back down at Panmunjom to discuss terms. This willingness to treat, once again, had been facilitated by the Chinese agreement to a previous Indian proposal, which had asked for sick and wounded prisoners to be exchanged. Beijing's acceptance of this proposal, on the 28th of March 1953, represented the first in a series of steps that seemed to suggest the Korean War was approaching its conclusion. The Chinese acceptance of the exchange of the unfit prisoners was significant, but far more important was the simultaneous acceptance of another Indian proposal within a few days. In his article on the Indian role in the armistice of the Korean War, historian Robert Barnes emphasised the key moment of the 30th of March 1953. Because of the Chinese recognition of something fundamentally problematic to the progress of peace talks up to that point, that being the status of communist prisoners who did not wish to return home. The issue of the non-repatriates was to be dealt with, according to the Chinese concession, by their transportation to a neutral country for six months, while representatives from their homeland were to try and persuade them to return home. If there remained non-repatriate prisoners at the end of this period, then their final destination would be determined by the post-armistice political conference on Korea. This proposal was unmistakably based on the Indian resolution made the previous autumn, and Nehru believed that here at last was a real opportunity to move forward with a rival concession in a bid to achieve a proper peace. Over the subsequent weeks, in a hive of activity as the different delegations put forward their two cents in the UN General Assembly, the Indian delegation sought to build upon its previous peacekeeping work, and eventually managed, following some American compromises throughout April 53, to merge its proposal for peace with the proposal of the United States. The final draft of the resolution calling for peace in Korea noted that With deep satisfaction that an agreement has been signed in Korea on the exchange of sick and wounded prisoners of war, that the exchange of sick and wounded prisoners of war will be speedily completed and that further negotiations at Panmunjom will result in achieving an early armistice in Korea and decided to recess the current session upon completion of the current agenda terms, and requests the President of the General Assembly to reconvene the present session to resume consideration of the Korean question, a. upon notification by the Unified Command to the Security Council of the signing of an armistice agreement in Korea, or b. when, in the view of a majority of members, other developments in Korea require consideration of this question. The key problem for both the Indian and American delegations was how to get the communists to pass such a resolution, particularly when communist policy would always be skewed in favour of disagreeing with the United States or deliberately delaying proceedings when an American proposal came about. This was just the way the communists did things. It was almost like they were doing it to spite the Americans. Now, the Chinese and the communists tended to vote against the Americans' proposals, not just for petty reasons. They also were suspicious of the American intentions as much as they wanted some propaganda boosts, and Washington certainly followed the same natural policy of healthy suspicion to anything either Beijing or Moscow proposed. In this case, though, signaling their willingness to humour those present, the Brazilian delegation agreed to present the draft as their own, freeing the communists from having to be seen to support an American-backed resolution. This little technicality seemed to push the proposal further forward, and it was one of the few proposals in the history of the UN General Assembly to receive approval from all the delegations in attendance. This, more than anything else, 
really did declare just how badly everyone in the United Nations wanted the Korean War to come to an end. There was of course still much work to be done, but over May 1953, with the Indian proposals for the prisoners issue accepted by all, it was becoming easier to move forward towards peace. The Neutral Nations Reparation Commission was established that same month, and it was tabled by Sweden, Switzerland, the Czechs and the Poles, with Indian leadership. The commission was tasked with facilitating the delivery of prisoners back home, a central concern for Mao Zedong, since nearly half of the 170,000 plus prisoners in Allied custody did not seem to want to return to his socialist paradise. I wonder why. The Neutral Nations Reparation Commission effectively created a halfway home, where the neutral states policed the handling of reluctant soldiers and attempted to persuade them of the importance of returning to where they had come from. This commission, it has to be said, was a necessary foil to the bad taste left in communist mouths back in summer 1951, where Truman had claimed that only communist soldiers who wanted to return home would be forced to do so. From this high-minded but surely well-intentioned claim did every problem and suspicion regarding the prisoners flow, and this commission in May 1953 was viewed as the best way to compromise over this towered question. While it may have been impolitique to send unwilling communists back to Mao, it was still more impolitique, as both sides discovered, to delay concluding the war over this particular question. Under the communist terms, the commission was to hold on to the prisoners for a maximum of four months rather than six, whereupon, if no change of mind was recorded, that bridge would then be crossed. Initially, Eisenhower felt pressure to reject the communist terms and to offer only 60 days before communist prisoners would be allowed to choose whether to actually go home or not. This, of course, was fundamentally unacceptable to the communists, as Eisenhower knew it would be, and within a few weeks the president bowed to the diplomatic pressure of his allies within the United Nations, rather than the pressure exerted by hardline, armchair, anti-communists at home in the United States. On the final march towards peace, the UN negotiators tabled a new proposal, conceding that all non-repatriate prisoners be held in custody for 90 days. After that 90-day period, the repatriate prisoners could then be held for another 30 days before the final disposition of any remaining prisoners could be taken. This was very similar to the four-month proposal given by the communists. I mean, you got 120 days on the one hand or four months on the other. It almost seemed as though they were just trying to be different despite one another. But in any case, after the period of time, after the 120 days, the prisoners would either be released or handed over to the UN General Assembly. They would be under the custody of that body. The communists were allowed to choose which one occurred. In the context of our narrative on atomic diplomacy then, this means that the prisoners issue resolved itself before the United States even threatened nuclear attacks. Dulles's claim that his atomic threats in late May, through Nehru and directed against the Chinese, thus suffer a further blow. Yet it still took a further seven weeks before the fighting actually stopped, even after all this progress had been made, in large part due to Syngman Rhee's outrageous decision to release 27,000 prisoners, just allowing them to escape into South Korean territory. Panic then seemed to take over for a time during much of June, as it wasn't certain whether Rhee had just derailed the peace talks or not. Mercifully for a war-weary Washington, though, the Chinese signalled their willingness to accept the Allied explanation as to why these prisoners had been released, and allowed to do whatever they wanted, essentially, which, of course, went against what had just been agreed. You can't have a load of communists just being freed willy-nilly by the South Koreans, because those communists will more than likely stay in the South, and Mao didn't like that. It did suit the communist propaganda to note that Rhee was a loose cannon, jeopardising the peace offences for his own selfish reasons, but Syngman Rhee certainly had national security in mind when he opposed any armistice, which would leave Kim's regime in control of the North. Syngman Rhee feared, and with good reason, as history has told us, that the Korean War would simply erupt again at a later date, but that even if it did not, South Korea would be forced to live in perpetual fear of its aggressive neighbour for the rest of the divided peninsula's existence. Rhee's bitter and aggressive attempts to torpedo the armistice didn't last, though, and after a few weeks, following revelations that he would be left to face the communists alone if he did not yield, 
the aged president finally caved. During this time, Nehru became increasingly anxious and pressed for the UN General Assembly to discuss the Korean developments. After all, several times in the past the conflict seemed close to resolution, only for some unforeseen issue or insult to delay proceedings. By summer 1953, though, the situation was markedly different. There seemed no question in the communist camp about delaying the outcome which their own initiatives had built towards. The Korean Armistice Agreement was finally signed on the 27th of July, 1953. As we have seen in this episode, the necessary conditions to end the Korean War were established with Eisenhower's election and Stalin's death in the first half of 1953, but these developments alone were not sufficient to end the fighting, since a solution to the outstanding prisoners of war question still had to be agreed. The prisoners' issue, as we have seen, was the forgotten problem of this forgotten war, and it was the fundamental reason why the conflict dragged on for as long as it did, long after the front lines had stabilised and the public had grown tired of the theatre. It was the Indian resolution on this prisoner's issue, originally proposed by the delegation in autumn 1952, and then adapted in spring 53 by the communists, which enabled the negotiators to move forward. It would thus not be hyperbole to state that the Indian resolution provided the essential means to end the Korean War, since its terms eventually proved acceptable to both sides, and it was borne out in the resumed armistice negotiations. India thus did much to facilitate the signing of the armistice agreement in the spring of 1953. Nehru, to his credit, showed great patience and foresight, resisting the temptation to push for further UN action, and he instead placed his trust in the negotiators at Panmunjom. New Delhi then pressed both sides to move ever closer to the Indian Resolution, reprimanding Washington when it drifted from this course and criticising Rhee's sabotage attempts. India has to be given a good bit of credit then, guys, for flexing its own diplomatic muscle in its own right and for nudging everyone along in the process towards peace. So, we finally made it. The Korean War, launched by a scheming, ruthless and far-sighted Soviet leader on the 25th of June 1950, came to its end after so many weeks of terrifying offences, so many months of dreary stalemate and so many years of terrible, bitter warfare. While the exact reasoning for the final conclusion of the conflict will always be open for debate, and while its actors will always be contentious, controversial figures, as will their claims, it has been our objective to shed light on this conflict and to bring it to its conclusion as only when diplomacy fails can. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed our coverage of this conflict over the last 47 episodes, but you should know that we are not finished yet. Please stay tuned for the final episode next time as we wrap up the conflict and its disparate effects, lessons and results, as the United States, the Far East and the rest of the world, caught in the middle, prepares for the next chapter of the Cold War. Until then, history friends, my name is Zach, and this has been the penultimate episode of the Korean War number 47. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.